Hey, y'all, if you enjoy watching your podcast, which seems kind of weird, watching your podcast, but some people really enjoy that. So we have a YouTube channel. You can find it at Heather Parody, P-A-R-A-D-Y. It's also linked up in the show notes. You can hit subscribe. And several of these interviews are actually in person. So you can watch that. Again, that is at Heather Parody on YouTube. Now more than ever, we feel insanely rushed. As creators, as business owners, the constant need to perform and execute and deliver at such a fast-paced cadence. It's really difficult to stay grounded as a human being, let alone connect with each other when we're all moving so freaking fast. What do we do? Today, I connected with Dr. Michael Sonic, who is on a mission to teach the power of human connection in business. He has spent the past 40 years as a successful periodontist, traveling the world, educating folks on their dental craft. But there's been a shift as of late. Through building his practice and his education career, Dr. Sonic is convicted that the secret sauce is connecting with one another. In his book and work, Treating People, Not Patients, he gives some tactical, pretty clever advice on how to bring human connection back to our work. So if you're a business owner, if you want to impact people with your work, you got to listen to this. The people that were really fast and efficient, you looked at them and you looked at the people who were slower because his job at the end of the night was to add up all the tips and divide them up. And he found that the people that were the slowest or seemed to be the slowest made the most money. I waited 24 hours, I called her. And I found out that that was there. And then I sent a copy of the obituary to every member of my team saying, this is the backstory that you didn't know. You didn't give her time to figure out. And it was just, it just brings chills to me because that kind of stuff is out there. It's real. And we miss that. We miss that all the time. You never know why someone is the way they are. I have a big question for you that I've been wrestling with just in life in general for quite some time. And I don't think I've ever asked anyone this before, but I think you're the perfect person. I am so excited, y'all. Y'all don't even know. I've had the honor of getting to know Dr. Sonic over the past several months, and we've talked about a lot. We've dug mm -hmm. into a lot of your work, but I haven't really had the chance to just from a selfish place come in and pick your brain about this idea of human connection. You've spent just decades studying how to connect with people. I mean, coming into... I was just in the dentist's office the other day, and I'll tell you what, I'm probably the worst patient because I get in there, I'm asking a million questions, I'm nervous, I'm like half biting the dude's hand, I'm like the worst patient. And so that is such a stressful environment to come mm -hmm. in, and you've decided to, you didn't have to, you didn't have to do this, but spend a huge chunk of your time educating practitioners, people who work with others, how to not only calm nerves and create a safe environment, but to actually empower patients when they come into a situation, they're not freaking out like Heather Parody and they actually have a good experience. Maybe even, dare I say, a fun one. Mm -hmm. So this takes a lot of, a big old intro, Dr. Sonic, a lot of psychology, a lot of attention. It is just an honor to have you on the show. I have a ton of questions for you right here. I don't know if you're ready for me. But uh, we're going to have I'll a good try. time. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know one thing about you, Heather. You're very kind. So I'm not concerned about that. Well, I don't know if I told you this. I spent about a year, it was about a year ago, studying human connection online. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find a ton of information about it. And when I read your book, although it's for, or let me say it's aimed towards the dental right. practice, 
I got so much out of it. And I think folks, no matter what industry that you're in, you're going to learn a ton about connection through your words. But let me start here. Let me start here. I'm going to go to page 24. I'm going to do like Oprah does and read you a little bit of your book. But on page 24, it says, my tendency to question authority has served me well. And I don't accept the status quo or take anyone's word for it. You've got to prove to me that your way is the right one. And I wanted to start there because I wanted to give folks context about your personality, your kind of viewpoint of the world. Because sometimes when we hear human connection, we think, oh, that's airy fairy. That's right. just cute. And really understanding that you kind of have to have a rebel spirit to come into this conversation. Yeah. I mean, for, first of all, based upon some of you know, the work that we have done together and, you know, me working on promoting, not really the book, but the concepts that I want to get in. I mean, the book, it contains the concepts, but I wanted to get this out there and into a lot of schools and universities. And my moonshot is to change the way healthcare is delivered. And that's mm -hmm. a rebellious way of thinking to begin with. And out of all the podcasts and conversations I've had, not one person has ever opened up the book and read something that was really like right on. And I didn't know what you were going to read. And I think that's brilliant, you know, to pick up something like that because it comes to the mindset of the mindset of somebody who wants to change the way things are being done. Right. Now, I did not choose my personality. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I know. I know. It's not like we go into a store and say, what am I going to wear tonight? Uh, how am I going to be? Am I going to be someone who's really passive or very aggressive mm. or sarcastic or, you know, thoughtful? Or am I going to be a reactionary? I mean, my personality has always been, and I don't know why, I have ideas, uh, but I've always been someone who wanted to do it a certain way, and you had to prove to me that that was the right way. And my father, who was an engineer, my father, mm -hmm. it's an interesting story, my father was an orphan, and he grew up very poor in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And he was, my father was brilliant, but he couldn't see the board. So he was, he was a C student, and he, he, had a, he went to work bagging groceries, it's not in my book, in a, in a grocery store so he could buy glasses. When he read the board, his, all of a sudden his grades went up and he got into Northeastern University and then he got drafted into World War II. But he he grew up, you know, a certain way. And because he grew up in a depression and poor, he pretty much tried to beat into me a certain way of being. Hmm. And it was very hard for him because I didn't care what he said. And I grew up, I'm not that big of a person, you know, I mean, I'm not small, but I'm not big. My father was huge. He could not play one piano key with one finger. He just was one of those big men. He was a man's man. And like, he, he just commanded authority. And I, I was scared to death of him, his, his physicality. And that made me really even go against him more because he's like, I don't care how big you are. You know, I feel this way. It would drive him nuts because he would try to teach me and I refused to listen to him. And mm. he was bigger than me. He was smarter than me. He was more intimidating. And we went at it all, all the time as a kid. And I sort of like, it wasn't until I got into my fifties that, you know, I realized what I had done to him. I sort of felt sorry for him because he had me as a child. And I mean, he was proud of me. I mean, he was very proud of me, but it was all about, you know, hard work never killed anybody. One man with courage makes a majority. You cannot hurt me. I feel no pain. Mm -hmm. This is what I got told over and over as a kid. And I sort of grew up like, well, it was a combination of him and then going against them. So it was, was really good grist for making me into sort of being tough and being an mm. outsider. So most people, when I say most, probably 95%, and you're not in that 95%, Heather, but 95% of the people up there do believe what they're told. And we see that today, you know, it's really, that's, we have a problem because people believe what they're told and, and what are they mm. told, what they read. 
mm-hmm. you know, what do you look at? You know, Dan Sullivan says that my my eyes only see and my ears only hear what my brain is looking for. So what is so what are we looking at? I mean, you know, if you're looking at Fox News or you're looking at CNN or you're looking at some conspiracy theories. And by the way, there's conspiracy theories about everything. You know, yeah. there's, there's nothing that doesn't have. So it's like people coming up out. And I don't, you know, people say, are you a conservative? You're liberal, you're Republican, Democrat. I go, I'm nothing. You know, I, I just want to know what the truth is. That's, that's what right. I am. I'm sort of a truth seeker. It's very hard to figure that out. So I don't believe anybody. And as a resident and as a student, you know, my professors would get very upset with me because I wouldn't do it their way. And because if it didn't make sense, I won't do it. Hmm. And as a teacher, because I spend probably about 30%, maybe 40, maybe more now, as I'm getting older, doing more and more education, more of my time is spending education. I tell my students the first thing I go, I'm going to show you some great results based upon the way I do it. I go, but this only works for me because I do it this way. Don't believe anything I say, you know, try it on. If it makes sense, try it. And if you don't believe me, challenge me. And if you don't believe somebody else, challenge them. And early, you know, when I was a student, my professors didn't want us to challenge them. It wasn't the right. Socratic method. It was like, this is the way to do it, especially in professions, especially in medical and dental school. It was, I fortunately went to a school that wasn't like that because it was run by a guy called Harold Lowe, who was from Norway. And he had, he had a very different way of treating us. It was very different in the seventies to have that kind of a education. It was pass fail. And we were, we were called doctor before we were doctors and they treated us with respect. And that's not the way most, most, most doctors were treated. They were treated very poorly. They're beat, they're beaten up. Hmm. We've actually had to change the laws because of it. Cause residents used to work, you know, a hundred hours a week. They make a lot of mistakes. They push and push and push them. So interesting, good question. But I think it, what it does if I'm talking too much, Heather, just stop me. No, keep going. I, this I is can, good. I can go for, as you know, for about four <laughs> days. And now well, uh, let, let me press into it a little bit and, and kind of keep you there with this this okay. idea. And, and we'll get into the specifics of the book in, in just a moment. But I just want to add like high level context here because I don't know your experience if you've had this, but usually when I start bringing up like human connection and empathy and yeah. all this stuff, people are like, okay, well, I'm not a therapist, but, you know, and, and, and I right. pass it. And you just mentioned, you know, a boy who grew up with a very masculine father. You kind of have this rebel spirit. You mm-hmm. are a brilliant practitioner. I mean, you're an educator. You travel all over and you, I mean, write textbooks. I mean, you're good at your craft and what you do. And it would be easy to say, well, you know what? My job is to provide X service, do it well, and it be sitting here and being friends with people or making them feel safe, that's not my responsibility. And no matter what industry you're in, I think we can sometimes put that excuse forward. Right. That's not my personality. That's not my job. And you're advocating for something different here. So if you can just lean into why this connection conversation matters, no matter what industry, no matter what personality. Yeah, well, it matters for a number of reasons. Number one, it's just a nice way of being. I mean, you know, I once went to a, a seminar and if I get off on a riff, bring me back. Okay. Let's but I once go. went to a seminar, I was 30 and I walked in with a guy named Fred Kriegel, another 30 year old prosthodontist. And we walk in and we were the youngest two people there. Everybody was had gray hair and they were in their seventies. And it was, I, I thought it was a practice management practice growth seminar. I just opened up my practice a year ago and the guy that ran the seminar, he's passed away, but it was a brilliant accountant and financial planner. His name is Harvey Sarner. And he says, I apologize for those of you who are here for the practice management seminar. There was a misprint in the catalog. He says, this is actually a seminar on retirement planning. So if you're younger and you want a practice management seminar, I'll give it for you right now. It's, it's four words. Be nice to people. 
Ooh. And that was it. And that's how you build your practice. And I thought about that. You know, I don't, I don't know if anybody else ever heard that. And everyone, nobody quotes him for that because he's noted for something else. But being nice to people is a good way to be. And it's a good way to be for a number of reasons. First of all, whatever you throw out there, and I know you and I, we've talked about this, whatever we throw into the world comes right back at us. Yes. Yeah. And especially who you're being. Yes. I was in a car about an hour ago with my daughter and we were talking about Phil Pacelli, who's a brilliant oral surgeon that I work with. And she knows him. She goes, I never met him. And we're talking about him. We're talking about great doctors and there aren't many great doctors. I mean, it's, I, I say it's the 2%, 2% of anything's great. And she goes, well, who, who have you worked with that you've never seen any complications from or has handled things? I said, Phil Pacelli. And I talked to Phil Pacelli once every two months. As I said, Phil Pacelli, the phone rang. It was Phil Pacelli calling me to, to thank me for about a patient that I sent him and how he, well he treated him. It was unbelievable. It was like, and I turned to my daughter, who's very spiritual. And I said, man, it's out there. I go, well, she goes, it happens all the time. I go, it does. I said, but I didn't, I didn't go on to, you know, being nice to the barista in Starbucks is important, but it is important who you're being. So by being nice to my patients, I have a better life. Did you know that 50% of all physicians and doctors would not have done it again if they knew what they know? once they're, they're unhappy with their job. So when you say mm. you're afraid of going to dentists, you're afraid of going to dentists for a number of reasons. One, it's unknown. It's fearful. It's painful. It's expensive. You don't know if he's any good, but really half of them don't like their job. So wow. you get that field feedback all the time. So when people say to me, I got a great dentist, what they're telling me is they don't have a great dentist. They have somebody that they like that makes them feel good. You may have a, you like oh, your dentist. So he might actually be a good clinician, but I know some great clinicians that are terrible people, but they're just great at doing the clinical procedure. Now, I don't think you can be great at doing a clinical procedure unless you're a good person because you're working on people. It's, you're not a one mm. person. All right? You're not a computer programmer. You're working mm. with another human being. So why is that important? Because I feel it. I'm not an empath. I don't, you know, I don't walk by homeless people in the street and feel really bad for them and say, oh, that's too bad. It's going on. I've spent time in India in the ghetto and things and seen some horrific things. My heart doesn't reach out. Some people just go, oh, yeah. you know, but I do feel when I'm with people, I know what you're feeling. I know exactly what somebody's feeling. And so I have been blessed with a personality that doesn't believe anybody unless it's true and prove it mm. to me. I've also been blessed with personality that feels everything. So I feel and mm. see part of the book on hospitality comes out of restaurants. Cause I like, I, I, I pay attention to music. I pay attention to light, pay attention to smells. Oh, I've gotten into a cab with my wife in New York. We get in the cab. She goes, I go, I know. And we just step out of the cab and she goes, we can't ride the cab. And she feels badly for the cab driver. I don't cab smells. I'm not riding that cab. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna right. spend a half hour near. And then she wants the cab driver to go before we get into the next cab. She doesn't want to feel, make him make feel bad. I go, I don't care about that either. I'm getting into the next cab. I'm not waiting. So I'm just sensitive that way. Being sensitive that way means that I'm sensitive to how patients feel. Now mm -hmm. dentists have the, I don't know if you notice as a therapist, have some of the highest suicide rates. Now I've been, mm -hmm. I have a lot of different theories for that. Some people say they're, they're, they're like that because they feel that they're, People don't think they're real doctors because they're dentists. I don't know if that's true. People say they feel that way because they're in close proximity to people that don't want to be there, you know? And so you that's feel everything. Now I've talked to massage therapists about this before. And if you're a massage therapist, and I don't know if you know any or have ever done any of that work, but you're close proximity to a body. And if you see someone who's very toxic, when I say toxic, putting off some yeah. bad vibrations. I mean, sometimes these therapists have to leave. Now therapists also don't live, Massage therapists don't have a high life expectancy. 
they die younger. And I don't I thought it was because of the mm-hmm. stress of putting their fingers on there, but I think it's because they feel the vibrations of people coming off there. And so, <laughs> you know, like my acupuncturist wow. slash therapist, she's really positive. She's very spiritual, positive people. She doesn't, she won't work on people that are toxic, but she doesn't have to kick them out. They just leave because her, her, she has such good vibrations that they leave. So it's a, so it's an attraction thing. It's back to being hospitable. I have great patients. There are very few of my patients I don't like. Like a lot of doctors, oh, I, I just like the procedure. I like the patient. I like most of the people that I work on, but I don't treat a lot of toxic people. I only work with good dentists, you know, like Dr. Dr. Paselli, mm-hmm. you know, who said who was a great, great doctor. And so I try to work with people that are very positive. So why this is not this is not antithetical to being a good practitioner. It's just hand in hand. There's so much data. I mean, there's data out of Harvard with Sean Anchor. You probably know him, the uh, happiness guy. You know, he's going to no, say, I don't. Okay, yeah, he, he talks about, you know, being happy. There's a certain chemicals that go up in your brain and you can actually train yourself to be happy and you give up more positive things. People, patients that are treated in a more positive environment heal better. I mean, I don't have a very high complication rate. Now I'm good at what I do, but a lot of doctors are good at what they do and they have a higher complication rate. And I think it's because the patients, you know, don't feel good. They don't feel cared for. They don't feel taken care of. You know, when a patient feels bad, has something wrong, they'll call me and they go, I still feel so badly calling you. And I give everybody my cell phone number to, to remove that barrier so that they can call me whenever, whenever they want. So I think, I think people heal better if they feel better taken care of. And they, there's an old, you may have heard this quote. It's by Sir William Osler. He was a, an older, phys, older physician. I think he was from England. And he wrote, a good doctor a really good doctor treats the disease, but a great doctor treats the person that has the disease. Hmm. It's a, and it's true. You want to treat the person there, not the disease, not the, not the epidectomy in room three, you know, or the, yeah. or the root canal down the hall. Or we, oh, we got an abscess in the other room. I'll hear something. No, we don't have an abscess in the room. We have a patient in the other room who's in pain that has an infection. And we need to hmm. take care of that human being. So. You, you set me up perfect for question number two, if you're ready for it. In the book, you tell this story about this restaurant owner that you and your family visited for a long time. And there was one point where you said, hey, can we go get a picture in the back of the kitchen? And he didn't hesitate. And you went and you took a photo and you kind of use that as analogy of, you know, whenever you're doing the right things, you're always in a position to quote, kind of show the inside, show the behind the scene, because there's nothing there to hide. And I wanted to read another quick quote. It's towards the end of the book where you dive into this a little bit more, where you said, I strive to have my insides, the parts you can't see match my outsides at work and beyond. And that is the hallmark of integrity. So when you were talking about treating people right and this energy and so forth. I kept thinking about the internal work that we actually have to do. And sometimes I know I get so focused on my craft because I want to be good. I want to provide results for the people that I'm working with, but also I've got to be working on Heather, the human being and making sure that I'm in alignment, that I have a good vibrational energy, that I'm walking through my own pain and issues from childhood and healing some stuff and, and just doing the inner work. And again, that's some easy stuff to kind of push aside because we are like, ah, you know, whatever. I'm curious with you, what kind of internal work have you had to focus on and do you practice or advise other practitioners to work on to become the kind of person who's radiating from the inside out? Yeah. Well, that's a deep question. Uh, <laughs> no, <you> know, <laughs> sorry. 
no, I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with the question, but it's, it's great. I mean, I love your interview style. I mean, you're, you're, you're going at a completely different angle and supposed to give somebody a flower on their birthday. You know, it's, it's important. The insides, uh, the actually last chapter in my book is have your insides match your outsides. And I don't know who said that. I mean, I'm sure everybody said that, right? I mean, a lot of people mm. quoted that, but I, they, my insides didn't always match my outsides. So who right. I am today, you know, after practicing for 40 years, not the person I was 30, when I was 30, when I was 30 years old, I wanted to be known for my craft. I wanted to be a great surgeon. You know, mm. I wanted to be the smartest person when you walk into a room, you know, I'd walk in there with a suit on. And I remember being at a meeting in New York city and we're at the, uh, Marriott Marquis, this big meeting with periodontal meeting. And someone said, you look like a real periodontist. And I had a, you know, a nice tailored suit. I was 32. I had a little black binder with, you know, monogrammed, you know, now you can see I'm in a t-shirt. So it's, I was giving a lecture the other day at NYU for my friend, Jason Kim, who's one of my mentees, who's become a periodontist. And, and I came in and I laid a lecture, my t-shirt in a, in a sweater. And, it, and he was all dressed up with Hugo Boss stuff on. I go, hey, you look great. He goes, well, I'm not you yet. I still got to, I guess, still got to look the part. And he, I know him. He's a great guy, but I know where he's at because he didn't become a periodontist. He was 50 because he went back mm. to school and mm. his whole life he wanted to be a periodontist. He goes, I want to be you. Now he jokes mm. when he says that, but I know what he's saying. He, he still wants to achieve the outward success where people are comfortable and where he's comfortable saying, well, I'm, I'm this guy now. And he's great. And he's really brilliant in what he does, but there's a, most people, they want the outsides to look really good and feel comfortable with that. I remember I took a financial course by a guy named uh, Greg Stanley. I was, again, going back, you're bringing up, I don't know, maybe because you're a therapist, you go, I'm going to my past. So I'm 30 years old and I go to this financial course and he goes, you know, if you want to go into a meeting and everybody has these outward trappings of success, you know, they got the nice suit on, they got the Rolex watch, they got their least least, you know, fancy car, you know, in the parking lot. Yeah. And he says, you want to impress me? This was what Greg Stanley says. He says, you walk into a cocktail party, you throw down the, the deed to your house, meaning that you own your house, but no mortgage and throw down a million dollars with the T-bills. He says, you're independently wealthy. You got a million dollars of T-bills and no debt. You're independently wealthy. That would impress me. And not your Rolex watch or the fact that you're pulling a horse in your trailer behind your, you know, huge SUV. That's what's important. And those trappings there, I mean, it's freeing when your insides do match your outsides because then you can be yourself with everybody. Hmm. And that does take work. So what kind of work did I do? I mean, every damn day. Okay. Every damn yeah, day sure. I'm working. I'm working. Every damn day I work, I, I wake up and part of me says, okay, have I made it yet? You know, hmm. I've done everything that I wanted to do professionally. I don't have any, as you know, I just, I'm only doing this because I love it. But I still wake up like, isn't there something else I should be doing? Because I'm still mm. trying to do it. And I have a patient, a pretty well-known patient. He's a real estate guy. And you know, he's got 5,000 employees. He's got offices in like 15, 20 states. And you know, he's, he grew up really poor in Bridgeport in a, in a fifth floor walk-up, cold floor water. He was a caddy at the golf club. Now he's, now he's a member of many of them. And you know, he's still working his butt off. And I said to him, I said, Bill, I said, what are you doing? And I said, he's 70 something years old. I said, you still haven't made it yet, have you? And he laughs at me because he really, that's how he's wired, you know? Right. He's a great guy, but right. there's a sort of wiring that we get that we haven't made it. And I, my wife and I talk about this a lot. You know, she goes, when are you going to realize you've made it? And so I work at that. And I work at that by connecting with other human beings and showing my vulnerability. And you mm -hmm. know, probably know Brene Brown. She talks a lot about vulnerability and the power of that. Yeah. She's just brilliant. And you know, by being vulnerable, 
because most doctors are not willing to be vulnerable because they 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 want to be known as all knowing. And I really take that away. I the the metaphor that I use is the Wizard of Oz. I said, you know, when you're going to the Wizard of Oz, you know, if you're the Tin Tin Man or the, the Lion or Dorothy and the Scarecrow, they all wanted something from this person, and they finally got there, and that person was didn't exist. Right. the person behind the drape. And I say to him, I said, I'm going to pull, I, I, I tell this to most of my patients. I said, I'm going to let you in. I go, I'm the wizard of the wizard of Oz. Here's the curtain back. It's just me mm -hmm. here. I go, I know certain things. I don't know everything. I go, but this is what I do know. And this is how I'll guide you through this. And I said, if I don't know something, I'll, I'll let you know, because I've been through this process myself. So what specifically do I do? I think you got to be constantly teachable. I think you always have to have some mentors, you know, that are in your life. I mean, you're, you're a mentor of mine in certain areas. I mean, you're helping me with certain things and you're much younger than me. I mean, I go to karate today, which I, I used to do for decades and I had karate years. Taekwondo. That's cool. Yeah. I have a black belt, but I haven't gone in 18 years. So I just, I started going back and my, my teacher's 42 and he's fifth degree and national, you know, internationally. And, you know, I'm very humbled in there. I could hardly move compared to these, yeah. these guys. And I have teachers and everything. I have financial teachers. I'll have a meeting later with some financial guy today. There's always, mm. you got to be constantly teachable and vulnerable and not think that you know anything. I don't think I know that much. I know a lot about a little, but I don't know mm. everything about it. There are people that know more than me about what I'm do what I do on a daily basis. There's always somebody that knows more. Yeah. Being vulnerable and open like that. I think that's really, really important. So how did I get here? I've been beaten up a lot. You know, I haven't gone through my past with you, but I've, you know, you name the problem. I've had it. I have, yeah. you know, people, people come to me, you come to me at any problem you have, cause I pretty much had it. I, I said, I say that jokingly about surgery. I go, if you have a surgical complication, come to me. I've done, you know, 30,000 th surgeries, S things have gone wrong over time. That's what they call experience, right? Experience is what, you know, and I have quite a bit, both good and bad. But once I've made that mistake, I try not to remake the same, same mistake, you know? I mean, I was bankrupt at 36. I lost everything. I got divorced 30 years ago, left with not, nothing again. You know, I, le I left with only my practice, no real estate and close to zero money in the bank. And so I'm not afraid of losing anything because I just mm. want to get it back. And that's based on my personality too, because I don't care. Because right. I think it's just, which is a good thing. And that's why people who come to America say you can make it in America. You can, because you can do whatever you want. That's why all these people who come here with nothing. I know a right. lot of people who came here with nothing that have a lot, a lot. Right. It's just, you know, you just work hard. So how do you do that? Be honest, work really hard and persevere and show up. You show up working real hard and persevering and being really honest. I mean, you're going to be unstoppable. Come on. Yeah. Come on. But here's the good news for people like you and I, Heather. We don't have any competition because most people don't want to do the work. <laughs> you are not lying on that. Yeah. You're not lying. It is true. <laughs> That's what I tell folks all the time. I'm like, it, it's it's a shame. <laughs> but if you show up and do your job do what you say you're going to do and you're on time, no matter what field you're in, you're right. going yeah. to advance, just yeah. doing what you said you were going to do. So I, I wanted to lean into the the vulnerability piece again, sure. because you have a, a chapter about, and you, I mean, it re, it's reiterated throughout the book about the importance of sharing your story. In fact, a quote says, sharing your story is key. It's essential to one of the most important tenets of success in any field connection. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to highlight that because I've heard this, I felt it where we either a, we judge our story because we're like, well, it's not interesting enough or right. people aren't going to, you know, I'm boring. I'm this or I'm that. And, or B we're scared 
that folks aren't going to respect us or they'll see us right. in a different light and et cetera. And I really appreciate, you know, you tell your story about what happened as a kid with your teeth and how that helps you empathize with your patients. You just now shared about, you know, in your thirties, the struggles that you went right. through there and you don't blink when you do it. And so folks who are struggling with that story side, maybe they know it's important, but they judge it and judge themselves through it. How do you navigate that? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's very easy. I, I know that most people don't care. <laughs> so there's, <sighs> a, there's a friend of mine, there's a friend of mine, Kirk Barron, and he's, he's a practice management guy. He goes, at, at 20, everybody's talking about you. He goes, at 40, everybody's talking about you, but you don't care. And at 60, you realize nobody was ever talking about you. So I know a lot of people that have a lot of shame and they think that the yeah. people are listening to them. And I have three kids and, and they're in their thirties. And we talk about, I just spent this morning with my daughter. We were talking about different things and she's very spiritual. And we said, you know, people really just, and she goes, I feel sorry for people that because they're just because mm -hmm. they have to hide behind things so when people are vulnerable and sh share their story they're interesting i not i mean i'm not friends with all my patients i have many i have many many patients but within about two or three seconds i, I can have an interesting conversation with almost anybody you know my partner dr ma who's from mainland china you know he said to me when he first started he was struggling making connections for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was a second language. Wow. He'd only been in the country about 10 years. And he's not based upon his personality. He's not a very social person. So he goes, you have an advantage. You're from this town. You know everybody. But I don't know about most of my patients. What I do know is I just ask questions. And when I start asking questions, I become very interesting. And you know that as an interviewer. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to know anything about your, your guests. You just start asking questions and then you start to unpack things. And people love to talk about themselves. So when they start to talk about themselves, they become very interesting. So stories are interesting for a couple of reasons. One, they're a great way to connect with people. So when I can tell my story, they can relate to it. And I, I strategically tell different stories based upon who I'm talking to. I'm not going to tell a story about, about something that somebody can't, can't relate to. I'm going to, I'm going to try to talk, you know, where they're at and how do I know where they're at? Cause I'll ask them some questions and I'll start talking about them and I'll get them to open up. But I very rarely do a lot of talking. I'm not a social person. I can talk, but I'm not social. I'll only talk if I, I find the person I'm talking to interesting or if I have to do it because it's part of my job. I have to talk yeah. to a patient or if I'm teaching, but I'm not going to walk into Starbucks and chat everybody up in Starbucks and, you know, backslap everybody or walk into a room. <laughs> you know, when I'm at dinner with a group of people, Larry David talks about a middler. I don't know if you ever watched Larry David, but uh -uh. there's a person at a table that can can make sure the conversation is flowing. And they're not, they're not usually the one who's talking the most. If somebody is talking all night long, it's very boring. So I usually don't yeah. talk a lot. When I'm, at, when I'm at dinner, I'll just ask questions. And, and, and every now and then I'll talk, but I usually don't because I want to make everybody else feel comfortable there. And they'll have a better time if they're doing the talking. And then they, when at the end of the evening, go, Michael, it's really great talking to you. I'm thinking to myself, they don't know a damn thing about me. <laughs> you ever it's had so those experiences? I would oh, be, yes. They know nothing about me. I was stuck in a boat on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and I was held hostage because I was in this, I had to stay in this room. I held hostage for two hours, and I can, I can go on for hours about this guy. I don't think any of it's true, but I have a lot of stories. <laughs> he, you know, I always feel good when I spend some time with someone, and I can talk about him for an hour, and then, but they leave, and they know nothing about me. So he, mm -hmm. he didn't know what I did, where I lived or, or anything. So it makes people feel very comfortable when you share your story and if you share your story in a way which they can relate to. I don't, I don't share my story with everybody. It depends. You know, I'll share parts of my story. 
I usually share my dental story with people. I talk to them about that. I've been, been a, a patient in the dental chair or some of my medical stories that, you know, I know what it's like. I share just enough to, so that they feel I understand where they are because people, right. and this is the key, people want to be heard, right? That's really important. People want to be heard. They don't want to be invisible. They don't want to be an invisible procedure and they want to be made to feel safe. And yeah. that's why people don't like going to the doctor or the dentist because they feel unsafe. And I watch mm. a lot of, you know, when I see movies, when a doctor walks in and gives the bad diagnosis, I always watch how they portray, how they portraying that. And, you know, oftentimes it's terrible. You know, they'll be kindly and they'll touch an arm, but there's no empathy there. And then they walk out of the room. And, you know, so I pride myself. This may sound a little silly because we have a tissue box in every room in our office. I pride myself on getting one or two patients to cry on a daily basis, not to, because they're scared, but because they feel their sense of relief. Oh, people, that's so sweet. Because when people come in, they're scared. I watch the walk into the office. They're scared mm. to walk that. And the first thing I will say to a patient when they walk in, I go, the hardest visit was just walking into this door. That was the hardest thing you ever have to do here. Because we can keep people out of pain. That's not a problem of putting yeah. sleep or whatever. It needs to be done. So stories are important. I have a big question for you that I've been wrestling with just in life in general for quite some time. And I don't think I've ever asked anyone this before, but I think you're the perfect person to ask this question to. The question is, when we think about taking time with people, which is really what's required for connection, right? right? Taking that extra beat, listening, being present, etc. You're a businessman. You have employees. You have a lot going on. Although I understand the importance of that, I also too have the entrepreneurial Heather side over here and the ambitious one, which teaches scalability, moving fast, quick decisions, and figuring out how to live in both of those spaces where your patient might need an extra beat with you, but then that's going to make you late for another one and you want to show you know, be respectful of their time as well. How do you navigate that as like a patient-centered, heart-centered practitioner who also too has a lot going on? Well, that that's not just in doctor's offices. It's in, right. res it's in restaurants, it's car services, any service business. That extra time I spend with the patient that you may say, or other, other doctors may think that's extra time because we're on a schedule. It doesn't cost me anything. Matter of fact, it saves me time. You know, it saves it, you time. It saves me time. Yeah, I had a I had a coach once. She came into my practice about I don't know 15 years ago, and I'm really I'm fast paced. You know, I can go really yes. quickly. And, yeah. and if you ever see me cook, it's like I multi not don't multitask, but my arms are going, and I'm very very efficient. And that's how I was with my patients. Hey, how you doing today? Good. Everything all right? Good. All right. So if you have any questions, just give me a call. And I'd be talking and walking out of the room at the same time. And she said to me, she goes, you're really good. You're really effective. She goes, but you're way, you're not giving enough time. So I slowed down. And now I slow down because I want patients to feel comfortable and I want to make sure that they get all their questions out. And then I stop at the end. And the process is like this. I go, Heather, thank you for trusting me today. I said, is there anything that wasn't clear? I'll be sending you a two-page letter. You should get it within about two days. Check your email because a lot of it goes into spam. I go, but if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And by this time, my assistant will hand me my business card. Here's my cell phone and my personal email. Call me directly. I answer and go, thank you. Now, they're all scared. They don't know what the hell's going on, right? <laughs> so then I stop. And I go, do you have anything else? 
No. I said, well, now's the time to ask. But if you forget, email me or call me. And then I leave. That that time that you may seem, well, that's a lot of time. How long did that take? 40, 15 seconds, 20 seconds? It's mm -hmm. very important. I remember Dr. Ostreicher. I went to see him with my father when I was 20. And he had a waiting room. With, he was a dermatologist. There were 30 patients in his waiting room. And he was all by himself. I remember being back there. And he was this kindly older man. And he was with my dad. And he talked to my dad like he was the only person in the world. And I said to myself, I am going to be like that when I'm a doctor. There's 30 people in the waiting room. But when, when they're with him, they get him. And yeah. my practice, my team knows that then they can't make me go fast. I do the opposite. And I've developed this. It's just a habit I developed it to keep me to keep me sane. When you push me, I slow down. So I used mm. to, and I see people running in the hallway. Well, there's a certain way. Don't I don't waste time. Don't say how was my weekend to you know as I'm treating patients. Don't stop me. Nod to me. Right. You no, know, we're moving. Stay on the left side. Stay on the right side when you're walking. You stay here. We don't cut corners and go into people. I said just just be very efficient in your movement, but to stay on track with the patient. And if a, you come in and say, hey, next patient's ready. I'll turn to the patient. I go, Liz wants me to see the next patient, but I'm not going until I make sure you're okay. And my patients know that that's who I am. So they're not going to push me because they know when they get to see me, I'm going to be there for them. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about business. I make more money because I'm slow. So my new thing for saying to my patients, <laughs> I, love that. I tell patients, I go, I'm the most experienced, but slowest implant dentist in the United States. I said, wow. you come, there's this whole thing now, and you see it on TV, in teeth in a day. They go in there, they walk in there, they walk in there, it's like old man, they walk out, they got brand new white teeth, 24 hours later. I go, I'm not that guy. I can do that, and I, mm. if you're the right patient, but most people aren't like that, I'm going to be slow. But I will guarantee you this, when you're done, you're going to be done, you're not going to have problems and complications, and it's going to look nice and aesthetic. I go, if you want to have it done quickly, you can go across the street. So people know that. So I'm slow. I can charge more because I'm slow. I can charge whatever I want. My my profit is based upon my time and my materials. So if I want to make X dollars an hour, I just figure out how much how much my material costs for that hour, how much my overhead, and anything over that is my profit. So I can determine what I make on an hourly basis. Most dentists don't even know that or doctors. They just go in there. They think a lot is better or they take a lot of insurance and then they cut costs. You know, my daughter was telling me that she has to write off 50% of her fees because she works in another office because they take insurance. And so they squeeze patients in and she doesn't want that. So she keeps on changing her own schedule because mm -hmm. she's, you know, because she doesn't have her own practice yet, but she will. I read a book by a guy named Will Gadera. He, his restaurant was called 11 Madison Park and it was the most successful restaurant in the world. It's number one in the world about five years ago. That's a big deal to become the number one restaurant in the world. And you oh, competed wow. against, I'm not just New York, it's everywhere. And he took over Danny Meyer's restaurant called 11 Madison Park. And Will Gadera, by the way, his restaurant was number in the world, one in the world, I think it was like 37. Okay, so he was very young, which is not unusual because your, your peak of creative performance, you know, is in the 20s and 30s anyway. You know, it's a, as you get to be my age, you get more wisdom, but you're not peaking in terms of creative performance, according to, to the literature, like the mm -hmm. Beatles. The Beatles did all their great work when they were in their teens. They were afterthought by the time they were in their late 20s. It was over. The Beatles were done by then. Yeah. But anyway, Will Goddard, he worked in a restaurant called the Tribeca Grill. That's down in Tribeca, New York. It's owned by Robert De Niro. And he was in his 20s there. And he, he was very efficient. He grew up in a restaurant family. And he looked at the, at the different servers. And he was a busboy. And the people that were really fast and efficient, he looked at them. And he looked at the people who were slower. Because his job at the end of the night was to add up all the tips and divide them up. And he found that the people that were the slowest or seemed to be the slowest made the most money. 
because they got the most tips because they were given the better service and they were attentive. And I don't like it when people aren't attentive. So I went to one of the top restaurants in New York. I'm not going to say the name because it's a friend of mine owns it. And he has been in the top 30 restaurants in New York for 30 years. And I, I wanted to get in at 815, but I couldn't get in until nine. So I was taking out another prominent practice management guy from Texas who's in town. I'm taking him out with my wife. And I, I made the reservation online through open table at nine. And they texted me and they go, we can get you in at 815. I said, no, I'll keep nine because he was coming later. And I get there at nine. They go, you missed your table. Well, I already made it at nine and it was packed. I go, well, I have it here. They go, well, you're late because so, and that's, this is not the philosophy of this restaurant. So they sat us, it was fine. And then they were just all over the place. They were not present. They were talking at me. They didn't take that extra moment. I'm thinking like, they're going down here already from the front. And I was just there a few weeks ago and it was better. So for whatever reason, they were down. So then all of a sudden the manager of the, of that area comes there, not the waiter says, I'll take your order. And so I give her my order. Now, one of my pet peeves is giving an order and somebody not taking it down, trusting their memory. Now, you know, there's no better memory than a sharp pencil. So they are, sounds like a sudden expression. It probably, does. probably is. So they're not writing it down. Now I have yet to find anybody to take an order without writing it down and get it right. That's just my thing. Okay. I haven't seen it. Now I heard that there's one waiter in Dallas, Texas at the Inner Turtle Creek that can do it for 30 years, but this woman took it down. She forgot two courses and we're just finishing our salad and the main course is coming and we missed two courses there. I go, we haven't got the other two. It was just a disaster because they were rushing because mm. I, we got there at the busiest time of the evening and they screwed it up and they tried to, to they tried to speed it up. Now, and I got a thing from the restaurant saying, Hey, how was the meal? And I said, it was great. I'm not going to give them a bad review because I know the person and I just, it was just an off night and it done so well for 30 mm. years, but that was the haste make way. So I do better. I think it's important to slow down. I mean, Stephen Covey talks about that in his book. You know, I don't know if you read that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, yeah. Quadrant Two Time. Quadrant Two Time is that time that's very important where you're not making any money, okay? It's really important time. That's when you set things up. And in that Quadrant Two Time, that sets up all the other times so that when an emergency comes in, so when, when business is coming in, you're handling it efficiently and smoothly. And most people don't do that. Mm. Most people don't take the time to spend getting things organized, developing in those relationships. Cause my patients, if they're in a good mood, you know, it's much easier on the whole team, you know, and that's my area of, of expertise probably is be able to turn someone around very quickly. When they come in, my staff will come to me and go, my, this is a sonic patient. I go, okay. And they'll start, I go, don't tell me a word. All I got to do is walk in, you know, and you're probably the same way you can do it. I mean, you, you're very self-effacing and you can just open up like this. You come open and you go, all right. What's going on? And you listen and you go, you know, I know exactly how you feel. You know exactly how you feel. And then you take you take it from there. Because when someone comes in angry, you can just turn them around very easily because they're so easy. You know, when someone comes in, they're quiet. That's regret is hard. Someone comes in there and they're out there, that's very easy to take them and to move them in an area that you want. And that's what I that's what I do by spending that extra time with people. And it makes a huge difference. The real quick before I move on to the next thing, I think that's really a valuable tip that you just shared. When somebody is hot and mad, you just said that first you empathize. I understand how you feel. You start there. Yeah. Right. And then where do you, well, you acknowledge from there? It, it's the three A's, you know, you acknowledge, apologize and act. And then, so you acknowledge where they're at. You know, so, man, I see you're having, a, I see 
and it's not, I see you're, I see you're in a bad mood. You don't do that. They're never wrong. <laughs> no, I see you're acting like a bit of a jerk today. And I, you know, it probably a daily thing for you. No, you say, I, I, I see that things did not go well today mm. and that this happened. You know, someone can come in at, at, for an eight o'clock appointment and they thought it was at, you know, they, they're an hour early and they want to be seen or something like that. So I'm, I'm sorry about the mix up. I said, we'll take care of that. I never, I never make someone wrong, you know, never make someone wrong. And then what the point of it is a neuro linguistic programming trip. It's called a, a hook, hook and it's called a bait and hook. And what you do is when someone is, sometimes I'll create it, but so when someone comes in somewhat angry, it's very easy to move them because unless they're insane, of course, you know, like I was on a subway right. and somebody was ranting, you know, that person is insane, but in, in the office, you usually can, can change, turn that around unless they're really, really married to it. And the, the tendency is for most people to blame the angry person and to make them wrong, which just causes escalation. So you want to de-escalate. Danny Meyer talks about writing the end to your own story. You don't want someone leaving your office angry at you. You want to rewrite that story. Can I tell you an interesting story that happened the other day? Yes. It was really very powerful. In Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits, he talks about being on the subway and some kids are being with their father and they're just being very unruly. They're running around and they're not being very polite. He turns to the man and goes, could you control your kids? He goes, I'm sorry. We just buried their mother today and I'm sure they're a little upset. So you just don't know what the background is. Yeah. That happened in my office, that same story this week. One of my patients came in uh, to see me. Now she was a patient. I don't kick people out, but I kicked her out before I treated her. She needed about two years worth of work. It was a major reconstruction. She was nasty. She was just really difficult. And I said, I can't treat you. Before I treated her, I said, I'd like you to leave. And she wouldn't leave. And we ended up, ended up treating her. It took me two years. She put me through my paces, but we got a really good result. And she has a two minute video on my website saying how great we are, et cetera. She was, she's one of my more difficult patients. So she was in today. I've treated her five years ago. Everything's stable. And I said, you look great. And she goes, I see you wrote a book. I go, yeah, have you read it? She goes, I need to give it to me. And she spent a thousand dollars in my office. Okay. So but what I've noticed that people who have a lot of money, they want the book. They want me to give them the book. So I always give them a book. I go, yes, I pull it in, I autograph it, I hand it to her. Now she's getting her teeth cleaned in my hygiene room. I don't spend time in there. That's like, hi, how you doing? If you got a problem, go on my schedule. But I'm not wasting two, two, 10 minutes in there talking about nothing, okay, in the middle of my day because they're there to get their yeah. teeth cleaned. So I spent 10 minutes with her. I had the time that day. I gave her more time because she needed it. I figured it would be a helpful thing. So I finish up with her. She gets a copy of the book. And then I said to my staff, I said, when, when is uh, she coming back for cleaning? They go, not for a year. I go, she should be coming in every three to four months because she has so much work right. in her mouth. So they called her up and they told her to come in in three or four months. And she left a rant on the voicemail. And she called me four times. I'm not exaggerating. Four times. One was four minutes and 30 seconds uh, telling me how I was only about money. I just wanted to take her money. I just want to get her teeth clean. Mm -hmm. I told her she was crazy. So when someone's crazy like that, I'm not calling them back for at least 24 hours. So I called her back and we were talking and I said, and I knew what I was going to do. I said, you know, I want you in six months. There's no charge for your cleaning. I'll order you some special cleaning devices online. I'll mail those to you. You know, I, I'm sorry if we, if it's not about money, it's really about just taking good care of you. She goes, well, I'm sorry. I didn't get back to you. I was, I was getting pictures together for my son's funeral. Now I thought she meant Memorial because she's had four children. She lost one five years ago. She lost her second child the day she ranted at my staff. Nobody knew that, you know, everyone would tell me what a bad person she was. And they used the B word and all those type of things. You know, I spent that extra, I waited 24 hours. I called her 
And I found out that that was there. And then I sent a copy of the obituary to every member of my team saying, this is the backstory that you didn't know. You didn't give her time to figure out because you were worried about defense. And I'll go to her wake tomorrow. It just happened. I'll go to the wake tomorrow night. And it was just, it just brings chills to me because that kind of stuff is out there. And we miss that. We miss that all the time. You never know why someone is the way they are. Now, there are some people that are just really nasty people that are mean, but most people aren't, as you know. Most people, given yeah. the opportunity to be good, are going to be good, but not yeah. every, not everybody is. Sorry if I went on too long at that, but that just happened, so it was sort of raw. So glad that you shared that story. It just gives such a perspective of, like you said, we don't know someone's story, and there's an opportunity there to meet them where they're at. I know we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour and I have like a lot more questions for you. I'll, I'll, I wanted to make sure that I highlight I'll give you short um, answers. I'll <laughs> <laughs> no, just have to have you on again. This is so good. One of the things that you mentioned is not judging your patients. Yeah. 86. That's, that's where we're at right here. And I'm curious about kind of keeping your own emotions out of it Yeah. when, you know, sometimes this is the case, what you just shared. Sometimes somebody is just being an ass, right? Right. And keeping that neutral stance with folks, man, that is a, it's a skill set. And I, I get my feels sometimes and sometimes my feelings get hurt and whatever, whatever. I'm just curious how, how you stay neutral, but still care. Well, I have a job to do. Okay. What is my job? Really? My job really is to fix people's teeth. That's it. You know, what's your job, what's your job, you know, when you're teaching water skiing, get them up on the skis and so they can have a good time. You know, yeah. that's my job. My job is not to be right. And you, know, you want to be happy or you want to be right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have to prove anything. To these, these people, it's just my yeah. patients. I don't really care. I don't care if they're angry. I don't want them to be angry, but if they get angry and they're unreasonable, I'll just manage it. The joke I always say, is there's only a couple of people in the world and they're very close family members that have the key to my emotional box. Okay. Mm. You know, my wife has it. She can get me whenever she wants to. My daughters have it. Okay. That's about, that's pretty much it. Not my daughters, not so much because I distance myself from them too, because my job is to be their father, not their friend. And, you know, to get, to get, to get intimate with them or those type of situations they get through. Wife's a little different story because, you know, we have a good relationship. We go back and forth, but even there, we have a way of dealing with it. Part of this is also the way I'm wired and I am just very logical. Mm -hmm. I am empathetic and I can get emotional, but it's an an act. I just always process things. And that's why I I don't believe people because I I use logic. I default to logic, you know, not like Mr. Spock, but I just think about, well, why would I get angry at them? It's not going to give me what I want. You know, every now, like I, I am very fortunate. I have no road rage. People cut me off. I don't care. I just, certain people get like that every now and then when I get angry at somebody, it's like, wow, scares me. You know, I don't want to be there. So I've worked hard at eliminating all that. How do you yeah. do that? Prayer, meditation, exercise, yeah. you know, eating well. You know, I've been eat, I eat poorly over the last few weeks and I feel it. You know, so today I've eaten well and all of a sudden I feel a little bit better. You know, like I, I know all those things. I study longevity and health and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important that we do all those things and to take care of my own self. Getting angry at somebody else is not in the realm of taking care of myself. And it's none of my business to do that. My business is to get them to go through treatment as yeah. easily as easily as possible. And most of my team is that way too. We have a couple of emotional people on our, our team. By the way, I try not to hire emotional people because they, they're going to react. I don't want reactionaries. Right. I want people that are going to take the situation and move it smoothly, you know, through there. 
you know, when I was late in the restaurant, which I wasn't late, I was on time. They said, well, you're late. They should not have said that to me. It was bad verbiage, right. you know, especially right. in this place, which is known for their hospitality. It was really bad verbiage for him to say that. And if the owner of the restaurant saw them do that, they, he's gotten very busy. So he may not know that, you know, because he's got other restaurants too. It's very, very difficult to maintain that level of equilibrium and not get thrown off. You know, I just watched a series. I don't know if you're a soccer player. I just watched Beckham. He's a four-part series. He's a soccer player. And at one point in his career, the whole country of England was rooting against him. And he just played wow. at the top of his game. They were all booing him. The best player in England, they were booing him because of something that happened during the World Cup. It wasn't his fault. But wow. he, he knew that. But everybody else was against it. But he just stayed on the course. I'll tell you, if you stay on the course and do the right thing and don't let other people influence you, mm -hmm. you then you're going to be really, really successful. But at least your insides will match your outsides like that, too. And there's a little joke that I used to say. I go, do you know why it's called the right thing? Because it's the right thing. So it's important to do mm. the right thing. And I, mean, I always try to do that. And that was what my father taught me. You know, my father was really tough. He taught me a lot. He was my, my greatest teacher. You know, it's almost bringing tears to my eyes. And he was great. He grew up as an orphan and became a phenomenal father. You know, yep. that's rare. Why did that happen? We go, well, look at all these kids out there. You know, they have bad upbringings. Yeah, my father had one. He did not have a good upbringing. You know, he had a shovel mm. coal on the weekends, literally. And uh, everybody else went on for Sunday rides, you know, couldn't see the blackboard. And, uh, you know, then at then 1920, spent four years in World War II, came back and somehow he became a good guy. How does that happen? Wow. Yeah. That's a, wow. it's an interesting story. I had great parents, so I have it easy. I think so. I had great parents. So most people don't have great parents. And uh, you know, that's a, that was a gift that was given to me. I have, I've had a lot of gifts and I got to appreciate that. So one of the things that I'm working on now, and this is something that you can relate to, is I'm working on being grateful. And I was talking to somebody at dinner the other day and we're all grateful. Oh, I'm grateful. You know, I have my health. I have my kids. I have a nice house. That's all the grateful stuff. But what, what someone had told me at dinner, a guy named Steve Anderson, and what Steve said to me, he goes, what I'm doing now is I'm doing, I'm doing my gratitude, but I'm also saying, what have I been grateful for in the last 24 hours? And I want three things. So you start to look at every day to be grateful for three things that happened in the last 24 hours. Like mm -hmm. I'm grateful for this, this conversation with you because you've pulled stuff out of me that I never talk about. You know, I do talk about it, but yeah. not on podcasts. Right. I don't know if your listeners are going to be interested in this conversation that we have. or, or we'll, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this, this is what we talk about on this show. And listen, I, I want to, two oh. things, first of all, acknowledge you. Thank you. I know your time's super valuable and just the time that you set aside to dig in really, really deep. I don't take that for granted at all. And also your work with this book and your course and this next stage of life you don't have to do this. I said this earlier, right. you, you don't have to pour into this next generation of practitioners and folks who are treating people and advocate for human connection. I want to tell y'all, listen, this book is not, y'all know I'm not a dentist. <laughs> this is not just for dentists. This is for anyone who cares about other human beings work closely with people. There's a lot of tactical uh, tips and tricks we didn't even get into, just like the way you set up your office or the way that you greet people, the way that you, you know, if somebody has a, a hard thing you need to share with them, how, how you can approach that in a more tactical way, all the way through philosophical approaches of why we should be more connected. This book is phenomenal. It'll be linked up in the show notes, treating people, not patients. Is there anything else that you want to direct our listeners to? 
Well, I have a website, which is my last name, my first and last name. It's If you want more information, it's michaelsonic.com, so they can get information there. I'm not Great. That'll be linked. That'll be linked up in the show notes. Very last question. This is a doozy when it's a doozy, you know, the question I've been asking folks at the end is what is something that you are deeply questioning right now that you don't have the answer to? And the reason I ask this is I, I really want to encourage folks that asking questions is a good thing. Mm-hmm. We don't have to have the answer to stuff. Being curious is a, is a gift and a skill set. Right. So I'm curious in your life, it could be something really small, like, why don't folks, you know, greet us better at restaurants sure. all the way to something really profound? What's something you're questioning in this season of life? Well, there are four freedoms that Dan Sullivan talks about, the freedom of time, freedom of freedom of finance, freedom of relationship and freedom of purpose. And when you when you free up your life that you have freedom in all those four areas, then you can do whatever you want. So I have a lot of freedom right now. And uh, I'm in a good spot. Mm-hmm. The joke I always make is, you know, I'm seven, I'll be 71 in a couple of months. And the, the joke that I make is I'm in the best spot of my life right now because I have all those freedoms and I have my health and my health's not going to last forever. So what do I do between now and my death? Okay. What is the most mm-hmm. important impact? And I'm struggling with that now because I do a lot of things. And I'm, as you said, I'm pretty busy. So where should I be spending my time and giving up certain things that I do some things I'm really good at, but I'm not as passionate about it. You know, like I'm, I'm good at running my practice and seeing patients. And I do that only two days a week, but really if I was truly, if I truly was courageous, I pretty much would stop that sooner rather than later. So I could take all this energy and put it into some area that I don't know what I was going to be because writing this book, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I'm doing a lot more with this book than I ever thought I would. Yeah. And there's a lot out there. So there's a lot of opportunity out there for all of us. And there's no right or wrong. There's no rule book. We write it. So I got to figure out, you know, what's my next, what's the rule book for the next you know, few months, few years, whatever. That's what I'm working on now. And I don't know what's next, but I know it's going to be fun. And I know I'm going to put all my yeah. passion into it. And, you know, just meeting you and talking to you has been a lot of fun. You know, I I look forward to these conversations. And so thank you. Thank you for that. I just want to, I just want to acknowledge you uh, for your greatness and what you do and the passion that you bring to everything that you do. You're very helpful and you help a lot of people. And it's a lot of fun. Thank you. I'll take that. Dr. Sonic, my friends, make sure you check out book, Treating People Not Patients. Everything's linked up in the show notes. Thanks for your time. 